Amen. You can go ahead and find your seat. And as you find your seat, I will uh, just say thank you, first of all, to Lisa for leading today. Brooks is uh, on vacation in Costa Rica, so you go to Branson, he goes to Costa Rica. I promise you we don't pay him much. Swear to you, it's embarrassing how little we get away with paying him. But uh, they are enjoying themselves in a very um, well-earned vacation with him and and his immediate family, actually, I think with his father and and mother and then um, brother and sister and their families as well. So I think that they are having a uh, blast. As you're finding your seat, you can go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, as we today ask the question, how long must I pray? It's completely appropriate for you to use your table of contents to find the page number for Habakkuk, okay? We're not in that book a whole lot, so that's completely all right. Uh, If you've got a few Bible close to you and you want to use one of those, that's going to be page 785. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater, so I'm the one that has the privilege of preaching the Word most weeks that we're together. um, Our mission as a church is to help people become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. I'd love to meet you if I haven't met you before you leave for the day. I generally stand at the back door. Every fall here at Freshwater, we have what we call our annual family meeting and that we come together one evening and we talk about the previous year and um, we kind of just discuss money and ministry objectives and we cast vision for the year to come and we try to look two and three years into the future. And, and one of the things that, that we informed the church of this last fall in that family meeting was um, a new ministry, a, a, a partnership I should say, that we're entering with a ministry called Children's Hope Chest. And um, uh, we're, we're going to be launching that ministry sometime in the early spring, and we'll be uh, sharing about the care point that our church is going to be adopting, and I'm excited. I promise you about everything that God is going to use you to do and the disciples that God is going to use you to make in Guatemala through that ministry partnership. But in my vision trip to Guatemala last year, I met several families and uh, met lots of children, but one of the families that is forever stuck in my mind consisted of two boys. I'm going to guess that they were probably aged eight and six, something like that. We walked into their home, and we met their grandmother, and we met also their younger brother, who was probably around three or something like that. And you know the living conditions are poor. I mean, you've seen the pictures if you haven't been to a third world country. You've seen the pictures on the internet or on TV or whatever, and um, uh, it's not anything like where we were working to plant a church in Mexico. Mexico where the living conditions are really well and you walk into houses that are every bit as nice as the house that we live in or maybe even nicer and there's there's not really child malnourishment to the same degree but but in in Guatemala you're talking about houses made out of anything that you can find so tin tarps dirt floors uh, no real furniture or anything like that the the sewage the raw sewage runs down the dirt road that's right in front of their house you know the same dirt road that the kids are playing in and And this family that we're talking to had endured something especially terrible and that the oldest of the boys, who was now around eight years old, he had witnessed firsthand his father commit suicide. So ever since that event, his mother is now a single parent and she's doing everything that she can to provide for her sons 
so she spends pretty much all day, every day, working in a store there in town, hoping to be able to have enough money to buy food, and now the grandmother is doing her best to wash the boys. But you're sitting there, and the people are so sweet. I mean, they just let you come into their house, and they, they'll give you anything that they have as far as food or whatever or not, which is a lot more than most Americans will do, you know? So, um, but, but in those situations, you're confronted with the very real suffering and the very real sin that exists in our world. Things like suffering, like suicide, you know, things like malnourishment, things like broken families, things like dire generational poverty. And you're probably like me. You have sometimes found yourself asking God, God, how long can you, how long are you going to allow things like this to continue? Like, we believe that God is all-powerful, right? We believe that. That's what we believe. He has the power to change anything he wants to. So why doesn't he? Why doesn't he do that? We believe that God is all-loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. Why doesn't he show his love by expunging suffering in the world? We believe that he desires what is best for us. Why does he allow an eight-year-old child to witness the suicide of their father? And they have to live without a father for the rest of their life. Why does God allow all of this to occur? Well, when we come to Habakkuk, we learn that 2,600 years ago, so we're talking about 600 years before Jesus would even be born, people were looking at the world and they were seeing the suffering and the sin that was a regular part of life, and they were asking the exact same questions that we ask today. God, how long are you going to allow this to happen before you're going to take action? How long, Lord? Now, before we really dive into this, let's remember what's going on at the time of Habakkuk. Who is Habakkuk? Habakkuk is what we call a minor prophet. He's not Ezekiel. He's not Jeremiah. He's not Isaiah. The dude's book is only three chapters long. But he's a man called by God to speak on God's behalf. And his book is actually primarily, if you remember, a discussion between him and God. And remember last week, if you weren't here, by the way, we spent the whole week just kind of laying out the historical narrative that has led up to the point of Habakkuk. Um, So I really want you to know where in the story of the Bible, where does Habakkuk land? And we're not going to be able to review that every week. But if you missed that last week, I'd encourage you, greatly encourage you to go on freshwaterjc.com and check that out. But Habakkuk comes into the picture most likely right after King Josiah has died. So remember, King Josiah was the king of Judah that that brought about some of the most significant spiritual reforms that the nation had ever seen. He's a great king who did absolutely everything that he could to point the people back toward God, and he did a great job doing that. But when he dies, the nation finds itself in chaos. There's a power struggle. The country spiritually and economically and politically is beginning to crumble. And Habakkuk, the prophet, looks out over his nation and he sees how the people have no regard for God and how they have no regard for God's glory. And Habakkuk asks God, God, how long are you going to make me pray before you do something about this? How long, Lord? The world is spinning out of control. King Josiah has died. His replacements are really kind of a joke. God, you are being defamed by the people. How long do I have to pray before you're going to answer my prayer? And I would bet that although the details are going to be different in your life, I would bet that a lot of us have a similar circumstance. We've asked God, God, how long must I pray before you relieve my suffering? God, how long are you going to make me pray before you finally heal that individual that I love? 
God, how long are you going to allow children to watch their father commit suicide? How long are you going to allow sin to reign in this world? How long do I have to pray before I can kind of get your attention, Lord? That's what's going on in Habakkuk's heart, and I bet that that's what's going on in a lot of our hearts as well. So here's how we'll do this this morning. We're going to first look at Habakkuk's complaint to God. Habakkuk has a complaint. We're going to look at his complaint, his question. We'll discuss it a little bit, and then we'll come in and we'll look at the answer that God gives. And oh, does God give an answer. Oh, does God respond? And then we'll look at some closing things that we need to remember when we find ourselves in a similar situation to Habakkuk. So here's Habakkuk's complaint. And if you're doing the fill-in thing and the worship guide with the outline, if you're doing that thing, here's going to be your first blank. He asks, God, how long will you allow sin to go unpunished? That's his first question, his first complaint. God, how long are you going to allow sin to go unpunished? Now look with me to see that complaint. Let's read verses 1 through 4. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Or you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice, goes, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Okay, let's pause there and let's consider what is happening. Habakkuk is upset. And by the way, I think the dude is, is justified in being upset. I don't think this is sinful in any way. I think that he is begging God to do what he thinks God needs to do to protect his honor and his glory. And when I say his honor and his glory, I mean God's honor and God's glory. And you remember as well that Habakkuk is a prophet. So we can say that Habakkuk is in a relationship with God that is significant and something that you and I might have in common with Habakkuk is that when you have been changed by the gospel, your desire above everything else is to see God glorified. I mean, that's what you want as a Christian. I hope that's what you want. And that's what Habakkuk wants as a prophet, as he's doing his best to point the people back to God. So anything that kicks against God being glorified, anything that assaults God, you're not going to be happy with. You know, I kind of think of it like this. I love my wife, and I love her a lot. I mean, there, there possibly nobody in this world that I love more than my wife. I'm not okay with allowing somebody to assault her. I'm not okay with allowing someone to insult her or allowing someone to speak down at her or gossip about her. I could say the same thing to a degree about everybody in this church. We're part of a spiritual family. I'm not okay with people who are out to malign or destroy my family members. Well, Habakkuk is looking out over his country and the sin and the rebellion that is present against a God who has consistently, through the course of God's word, taken care of God's people and hit angers him. We can understand that. It causes him to get defensive. He knows that all sin, no matter what the sin is, he knows that all sin is cosmic treason against God. And he wants it to stop. It's that simple. And you have, you have these feelings. I mean, you may not recognize it, but you want the things that society does or the things that are accepted in society. You want those things that don't bring glory to God or that, that, or that, 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 almost to work to shame God or to cast something against God, you want those things to stop. You do. That's why you want drug use to stop. That's why you want abortions to stop. That's why you want greed to stop. That's why you want pride to stop. That's why you want racism to stop. That's why you want injustice to stop. That's why you want theft to stop. 
You want all of these things and so many more to stop, not because Christians are anti-everything, but because those things are working against the will of God. They're casting something against God's purposes in this world. And we can see Habakkuk's frustration. I mean, I know that we read over it quickly and it's kind of difficult to really dive into, but, but just think for just a second of all the, the, the ways that, that Habakkuk shows he's frustrated. And by the way, I think one of the things that people who aren't Christians and who haven't studied the Bible assume about the Bible is that the Bible is just filled with all these you know, great examples of people who had it all together. And boy, they were perfect in every way. And they never had any struggles, never had any questions in their heart. They, they didn't have any serious questions about God and how he operates in the world. But when you examine just in this case Habakkuk's complaint, the accusations that he is making against God, you see the dude is fired up. I mean, he is really upset. This isn't like some politically correct, cordial discussion that Habakkuk is offering to God. Habakkuk is getting real before God. I mean, think about his frustration. He's asking God, are you under letter A? This is in your outline. God, are you deaf? God, are you deaf? Where in verse 2 he says, and you will not hear. God, are you deaf? God, do you need to clean out your ears? Can you not hear me? He's asking God, are you under letter B? Reluctant? Where in verse 2, he asks, why do I cry to you violence? So he looks around and all he sees is violence. He sees things going wrong. God, I'm telling you what is wrong, yet you will not say, God, are you reluctant? Are you just, are you able? We know that. Are you unwilling? Is that what it is? He's asking God, are you under letter C? Are you lazy? Are you lazy, God? Where in verse 3, he says, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong. God, are you slothful? Do we worship a slothful, lazy God? He's asking God, are you under letter D? Are you an idolater? We're in verse 4. He basically questions, are you unwilling to honor yourself? Are you unwilling to have your justice magnified? God, are you contrary to your own nature? So man, you know, I've never prayed like this before. I'm going to be honest with you. I've never been at this spot where I was so broken for the world where I would dare to say things like this to God. And I'm not telling you that you should pray like this and that you should accuse God of, of, of being deaf or reluctant or lazy or an idolater. That's not what I'm saying at all. But here's what I am saying. You can begin to taste just a little bit of the raw emotion that Habakkuk was truly feeling, wasn't he? I mean, he looked out over the world and he saw this sin and rebellion that was running rampant. He's, he's fired up. He really is fired up. Which makes, I think, God's response that much more piercing. So let's go ahead and let's look at God's response now. Here's how God responds to Habakkuk's complaint. God says, I am doing exactly what I need to do. That's God's response. I am doing exactly what I need to do. Because look with you now at verses 5 through 11. God responds by stating, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. 
Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, I know that that's a lot of text to think about, and I also know that that when we're dealing with a prophetic book, our minds kind of wonder, and I know that my mind kind of really just has trouble kind of getting this all together. But just remember, this is a conversation between God and Habakkuk. And nonetheless, Habakkuk's complaint is, God, why do you allow sin to go unpunished? How long do I have to pray for you to correct this stuff before you're going to act? And I think we see God's response. I think we could break it down into two thoughts. Here are the two thoughts. First, God tells Habakkuk to expand his view. To expand his view. Now, where do we see that? How do we see that in the response? Well, think with me about how God responds. Right off the bat, God responds by saying, verse 5, look at verse 5 in your copy of God's Word. He says, look. And then he tells them where to look. Where does he say to look? He says, look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. This implies that Habakkuk had tunnel vision, doesn't it? This implies that Habakkuk, when he prayed to God, was looking for an answer, but Habakkuk wasn't looking in the right place. Habakkuk was was looking actually locally. So think about this. He saw the sin of his people. He saw everything that's going on. Remember, Josiah has just died, and Habakkuk is looking within Judah, and he's looking for that individual that God is going to raise up and use that individual, just like Josiah, to lead the people back to God. But God is saying, no, you're looking for my answer to your prayer in one specific way. While what I'm really doing is I'm working outside of the nation of Judah, and I'm about to take care of all of this. And when we come back next week, we're actually going to talk more about the details of what that looks like and how God sometimes uses wicked, wicked people and wicked nations to bring about his will, which is something that is difficult for us to accept, but it's the truth nonetheless. But for now, let's just admit that sometimes the reason that we can't see how God is working in our lives is because we've already got our mind made up as to how God has to answer our prayer. So when God comes in in a completely different angle and does something that we're completely not anticipating, well, it's, it's difficult for, see, for us to see all of that coming together beforehand. So I'll just give you a, a quick example that we've seen in our life. Shasta and I were newly married, and I think we had our first post-college jobs, finally learning what it meant to be adults, which meant mostly paying health insurance for ourselves, which is horrible. That's wretched. That was the worst thing. Never should have taken that up. But um, one of the things that we decided we wanted to do early on was kind of an adult thing, and that we wanted to finally buy our first house. So the town that we were living in at that point, we started looking, you know, and uh, walking through some houses and finally settled on a house that we thought, you know what, we're planning on kind of living in this town for the rest of our lives. Probably it was just a a town not very far away from here. We'll probably work in Jeff City. We like it here. We like the school district, whatever. And we'll buy a house here and we'll plan on living here forever. 
So we find this house, and we make an offer, and we make an offer that is a, a realistic offer, we thought. I mean, it's not like we, we knocked you know, 20% off the price, just knocked a couple thousand dollars off the price. And um, it was a really nice house, all brick, I think, nice neighborhood, finished basement, garage, just a nice house altogether. And when we made the offer, um, you know, I kind of assumed that the seller would accept the offer, but indeed, they didn't. And they didn't counter at all, I don't think, not the way that I remember it anyway. They just flat out rejected the offer altogether. And we couldn't bring ourselves to think of paying full price for a house. It's like, do you have a coupon out somewhere that we can like cut and hand into you for a couple thousand or something? We're not paying full price for anything. So we, heartbroken, just turned around and you know began to look elsewhere and kept looking. And eventually we found a house that we liked that was much older, probably um, less than half the size, half the price almost exactly. We made an offer on that house and were able to buy that house. But what we didn't realize at that point was that about four years later, we'd be moving to the other side of the state to pastor my second church. And it was then that we were so thankful that we didn't buy that house as our first house. Because not only would the utilities have been higher and not only would the property tax have been higher, but... um, you know, it would have proven to be incredibly difficult to sell that house in a short amount of time. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, look, preacher, I love your stupid little story from your life, and that's fine. You know, oh, look at the first world problems, right? You don't get to buy this house, so you have to buy this other one. I understand that. You know, and you might be thinking, look, I've got serious issues and, and suffering and heartache and pain, and I'm witnessing the sin all around me. So don't hear me act like, um, you know, that I think that, that whatever we've had to deal with or this stupid little story is on par with the suffering that you're dealing with. I don't want to say that at all. But the principle transcends all of our lives and every situation that we could ever find ourselves in. And it is that God is not under any obligation to answer your prayer the exact way that you think he has to. He doesn't have to do that. God didn't sign that contract with you. That's not what he signed up for. And that's not what you signed up for either whenever you became a Christian. He doesn't owe that to you. He doesn't owe that to me. As a matter of fact, we are called to trust that he knows better than we do what we need. Which actually brings me to the second thought regarding God's response. Not only does God tell Habakkuk to expand his view and that, dude, you're focused on me bringing somebody up in Judah. What you don't know is I'm working outside of your nation to correct this. He not only says to expand his view, but second, God tells Habakkuk to trust him. To trust him. And I'll cover this one briefly because it's going to be given more attention next week. But after God has told Habakkuk to look among the nations, he begins to tell about the nation that God is going to use to answer Habakkuk's prayer. And you see there in verse 6, they're called the Chaldeans. Now, we're going to talk more about them. But the Chaldeans were an enemy nation that in just a couple decades would march in, they would conquer Judah completely. They were ruthless and they were powerful. And that's why God spends verses 7 through 11 basically talking about how bad to the bone they are. But, and here's the key, when God is saying this to Habakkuk, none of that had yet taken place. I mean, that's another 10, 20 years in the future. That's still an event that is, that is off in the, in the distant future. So Habakkuk is left with God basically saying, look, I understand your frustration, man. I hear your prayers. But what I need you to know is that I'm working. I am working and my will is coming to fruition, you're just going to have to wait. 
And you can feel it. There's a strong demand there for us as well. Patience is a virtue that all of us should appreciate and we should long for, especially when we're begging God to answer a prayer and we've um, finding ourselves in a similar situation to Habakkuk. Now, let's pause for just a second. Let's review what we've seen and then let's um, um, kind of try to boil this down a little bit. We've seen Habakkuk's complaint. What was Habakkuk's complaint? Habakkuk is looking out at the world and his question is, God, how long do I have to pray before you correct all this sin that is running rampant? And then we see God's response. God's response to Habakkuk was, was hey man, I'm working I'm doing something. You don't even understand it yet, so sit down and get down off your high horse. And you need to expand your view, and you also need to trust me. God has always been faithful. We see that through the, the entire course of, of God's word. And, you know, it's real easy for us to come to this spot and for us to conclude that none of this really has helped any of us at all. And I say that because the issues that, that you're dealing with, a lot of us, or that you will deal with in the future, are much different than anything that Habakkuk is talking about. I mean, they're not 2,600-year-old problems, but they're real problems. They're real injustice that you see in this world. It's real suffering that is happening. For you, it might be, God, how long are you going to allow the father of my children to not pay child support? How long are you going to allow that injustice to happen, Lord? Are you okay with men not providing for their children? And the answer for that is no, by the way. God, how long are you going to allow the employees around me who lie and cheat and steal to raised to, to rise in ranks while I'm trying to live my life to your glory and I'm trying to honor you in the workplace while all these other people are passing me up and they're getting the raises when I'm not. Or God, how long are you going to allow our country to seemingly sprint toward immorality? Like just dead sprint as fast as you can run. When are you going to stop that? How long do we have to pray before, God, you're going to act on our behalf? I mean, those are real Real issues. And you've got your own thing. You've got your own things that you're thinking about. So, so here's what I think we need to be reminded of. This isn't going to solve the issue. And I was even thinking this morning, the whole question, how long do we have to pray? I'm not even answering that question this morning. So really, I duped you and I apologize for that. But, but here's what I think we need to be reminded of when we find ourselves in a situation similar to Habakkuk. First, this is in your outline at the very, the very bottom. First, we do not know what God knows. We just simply don't know what God knows. We are oftentimes, if I can use the word, ignorant. And that we are without information. We are without knowledge. We can't ever, you know, I say that not to our shame. I say that not about myself to my shame. I say to our edification. We need to understand this. We can't ever allow ourselves to begin to think that we have this thing called life completely figured out. God is infinitely more wise and intelligent than us. He knows things that we could never know. And frankly, I don't even want to know. Second, we don't remember what God remembers. I have to... I have to have people around me who will remind me of all the times that God has answered my prayers because <laughs> I'm so quick to forget. I know that he's done it a thousand times over. I know that he's blown our socks off so many times we can't even shake a stick at it. But I have to have people around me to remind me because we're so quick to forget. Third, we trust that God is faithful. We trust that God is faithful. I think part of the issue is that we know how often we aren't faithful and we take our faults and we project them onto God 
We take our untrustworthiness and we project it onto God. When God is not like us, God has consistently been faithful. And fourth, and by the way, I ran out of room on the outline, so that's why that's not about you. can just write it on the back or you can ignore it. Fourth, we seek the honor and the glory of God above all else. We seek the honor and the glory of God above all else. Now let me close with this and then we will be just about done. Sherman Smith was a running back for the, uh, well, he right now is a running back's coach for the Seattle Seahawks. But before he coached, he was a professional football player himself, and he was known as the Sherman Tank. He was six foot, four inches tall, 225 pounds of testosterone, um, muscles coming out of his eyeballs. You know, one of those dudes, just really um, a beast to say the least. But at one point when he was, uh, seemed like his career couldn't get any better, he was suddenly, without warning, he was traded from the Seattle Seahawks to the San Diego Chargers. And he wasn't with the Chargers for more than a couple weeks before he seriously injured his knee. And that injury um, almost instantly changed his whole life. It changed his whole career. He was in a new city with new friends, he'd been the most popular player on his last team, but now he, you know, he hadn't had time to gain the trust of his fellow players or of his new fan base, and he was, by his own admission, just kind of in shock. And being a devout Christian, he was asking, you know, he's wondering, Lord, why did you ever ship me to San Diego? But while his knee was recovering, Sherman had the opportunity to lead one of his teammates to the Lord, and that converted party guy. His name was Miles McPherson, who went on to become a individual, a youth evangelist that traveled all across the country and really all across the world sharing the gospel with tens of thousands of teenagers every year. Now, I know that that's one example out of a million where someone was crying out to God, God, why is this happening? God, how long must I pray before you act? God, you know, all these different examples, but it's an example nonetheless that reminds you and I that God's work is much bigger than our work. His world is much bigger than our world. His knowledge is much bigger than our knowledge. The fact doesn't always take away the pain. I'm not telling you this to take away the pain and the frustration and the suffering. And that's real suffering. But it can help us to endure. It can help us to endure. And it can also remind us that this, hasn't, that this has always been the consistent picture throughout the Bible. That God is working. He really is. God is drawing men to himself. God is making right what is wrong. And sometimes our response is to weep, or sometimes our response is to curse. Sometimes our response is to, just like Habakkuk, make accusations against God. But our response must always be to trust that he really is God. He really is God. Now, for those of us that are Christians, that's difficult even for us to really place into practice when we find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual storm. For those of us who aren't yet Christians, it seems impossible. So the first thing, the first trust that some of us need to place in is we need to take our trust and we need to place it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Now here's what that means. It means that, you know, the Bible teaches us that everybody's placing faith and trust in something. Some people are placing their trust in government or in another individual, another mere person, or in their job, or their finances, or their bank account, or their 401k, or one of a thousand different things. But we are told to take our trust and to trust in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, we're, we're acknowledging, God, we are sinners. I'm a sinner. 
I'm inherently a sinner. I've rebelled against you in so many different ways. I know that I could never build a ladder big enough to, 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 to get to you. I could never pay off my own debt. So I trust that you, God, sent your perfect son, Jesus Christ, to this earth, that he would die, and that when he died, he was taking upon himself my sin. So that when I place my trust in you, and I repent, and when I believe and I begin following you, God can now look at me, and he no longer sees adulterer or thief or blasphemer or whatever it might be. God now sees Jesus. He sees us as clothed in the righteousness of God. And for that, we can be in a relationship with him. So some of us, that's the first trust that we need to place, and we need to place our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've never done that, and you want to hear more about that, or you want to just start that right now and talk about that, there are three ways that you can respond, three ways that you can respond this morning. The first is with your Connect card, which is located on the inside of your worship guide. You hit that bubble at the top that says, I have chosen to follow Jesus. Throw that in the giving baskets when they come by later, and we will contact you to talk with you about that. The second way is on your way out. So I stand at the back door, you just want to reach out and say, Josh, I've chosen to trust in Jesus and follow him, and I want to hear more about what that looks like. I would love to have that discussion with you. And the third way is actually during the song that we sing here in just a second. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing together. And as we sing, I stand at the connect table in the foyer. If you want to come back and you have a prayer request that I can pray for you about, love to pray for you about that. Or if you just want to hear, what does this look like for me to begin following Jesus? I'd love to have that discussion with you as well. I will lead that conversation. This is also the time in um, our gathering on Sunday mornings when we give you an opportunity to worship the Lord through giving. Um, Understand that when we give to the work of the ministry here at Freshwater, we are giving not necessarily out of an act of obligation, although there is obedience in giving, but we're giving as an act of proclaiming the majesty of God, acknowledging that the mission of the church matters, that um, people's lives being changed matters, that funding almost 11,000 missionaries across the world matters, that all of that is important and significant enough to even have an influence on the way that we spend our money and the way that we use the resources that God has entrusted into our care. That's why we give on the Lord's Day every Sunday morning when we come together because it's an act of worship. There are four ways that we give here at Freshwater. The first being the giving baskets. So when they come by in just a second, um, you can drop your tithes and your offerings in that basket. The second way that you can give is actually the giving box, which is located in the foyer. So you can drop it right there. The third way is the giving kiosk, which is also located in the foyer where you can give by debit card. And then the fourth way is online at freshwaterjc.com. So those are the four ways that we worship the Lord through giving here at Freshwater. So I'll pray for us, and then after I pray, we'll stand, we'll sing, we'll respond, and we'll give as an act of worship to the Lord. Heavenly Father and Lord, it is good to know you. It's good to be with your people today on the Lord's Day. And it's good to be able to open our Bibles to a book that seems, honestly, it just, it, it just seems, seems like it doesn't relate to us, and it seems like it isn't significant. But as we dive into it, and as we actually think about what was going on, we see that uh, so much of, of, of what you use Habakkuk to record, so much of it, every bit of it actually, is directly practical and applicable into our lives. So for that, I am thankful, Lord. And my prayer is that when we catch ourselves in the midst of our workplace or school or whatever it might be, and we look out and we see a world that is bent on sin and is just rebelling against you and is kicking against your glory, my prayer is that you'd remind us of exactly what you told Habakkuk. Exactly what you told Habakkuk. That you are indeed working. 
You're not lazy. You're not reluctant. You're not without power. You are working, Lord, you are. So for that, we are a grateful and a thankful people. Now, as we stand and as we sing and as we give, my prayer is that you be honored. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.